Welcome to the Bike Pack Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours, bike packers, and endurance cyclists from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you'll be able to learn the ins and outs of bike travel. You'll get insight into various countries and cultures around the world, hear fantastic stories of their journeys. Through both mine and my guests' experiences, you'll learn about the pros and cons of specific gear, bikes, and bike setups. If you're new to bike travel and considering going on an adventure, I hope the podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. I want to thank Panorama Cycles, Redshift Sports, Restrap, Race Day Fuel, and Brockman Cyclery for supporting Bike Pack Adventures and helping to keep me on the bike. Check out the show notes for more information about these amazing companies. Thanks and keep on pedaling. Welcome to the Bike Tour Adventures podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski, and I interview bike tourists from around the world to bring you stories of their adventures and experiences. These are people who get out there and leave the comfort zone of the typical 9 to 5 to embark on ambitious adventures and take on challenges that most people can only dream about. If you like what you hear today, please share this podcast with other bike tours you know, or anyone else you think may be interested. If you want to get in touch, you can email me at info at biketouradventures.com or find me on Facebook and Instagram at Bike Tour Adventures. In episode 23 of Bike Tour Adventures, I have the opportunity to catch up with Jonas Dykeman, an ultra-endurance cyclist that was previously a guest in episode 13. Currently holding two Guinness Book Records as the fastest cyclist across Eurasia and the fastest cyclist to ride the Pan America. When I last spoke with Jonas, he was preparing for a monstrous 18,000 kilometer record setting challenge, which would take him from North Cape, Norway, all the way down through Europe, the Middle East, and Africa until finishing in Cape Town. In today's episode, we're going to talk about his most recent journey, the gear he used to take on this challenge, as well as his experiences and lessons learned during this newest adventure. Jonas, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Hello. Why don't we just start with having you tell the listeners again who you are and what you do? Uh, sure. So um, I'm from Germany and um, I have been uh, riding all my life and uh, two years ago I, I, got, um, I got lucky and uh, got sponsorships for my first uh, world record living across Eurasia and uh, after that I turned, my, uh, I turned it into, into a profession and uh, since then I'm uh, living the dream and uh, doing uh, long distance rides and uh, breaking uh, world records across continents. And uh, just came back for my for my latest ride from the Cape to Cape Challenge. And how did you come up with the idea for the Cape to Cape Challenge? And for me, it was always the, the natural thing to do because um, if you look at the, the map of the world, uh, you see that there is there are three big continental crossings: Eurasia, Pan America, and Cape to Cape. So having done the first uh, two, it just felt like um, I have to do it to complete it. Okay. And um, what kind of bike did you use for this event? I changed uh, my setup a bit from uh, from last year because um, the challenge in Af Africa is actually not uh, only the riding, but um, it's the infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And my main concern was um, the bike failure because there is only one bike shop between Cairo and Cape Town, and that's 11,000 K. That's crazy. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's crazy. There's, there's one good shop in Nairobi, but otherwise you find nothing. So the bike breakdown would, ha would have meant the game over, basically. So I went to a, a curve basic spirit a titanium frame, um, so it's simply more comfortable and uh, more stable than carbon. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, my whole equipment was uh, always a compromise, of course, between weight and, and comfort and, um, and stability. But I, I went uh, more with stability for this, for this event. Okay, yeah, because I guess a titanium bike could be a little bit heavier than a Cervelo carbon fiber, right? Exactly. It's a little bit heavier, but um, it doesn't break and uh, it's more comfortable. Okay. Is there any specialty equipment you use on your bike? I know I know you use a aftermarket seat. Um, what else do you have on your bike? Uh, or you can tell us about your seat as well, of course. Yeah, so, so most things um, are standard. Uh, my wheels are custom made. Um, that's a mixture of, um, of a tune hub with a Stenson Cube uh, rim. Mm-hmm. It comes from the quad so it's uh, more stable but still light. And uh, I made a big change uh, in terms of my arrow bars because I, I put in uh, almost 10 centimeters of spacers. Okay. So now I'm sitting actually pretty, pretty upright. Feels a bit strange at the beginning and it's definitely less aerodynamic. But um, on this kind of ultra long distance, when you ride 10 hours plus every day, I gain comfort and I can spend another 10, 15 minutes more on the bike every day. And that's definitely is more than worth it. Yeah, it just kind of saves your back a bit more, right? Just uh, takes a little bit more pressure off it. Um, yeah, I, I didn't have any back or, or neck problems. And um, just the whole, the whole body is in a, it's a more comfortable position. Okay. And what kind of seat are you using? I use a Brooks Campium. Uh, so that's a seat that is made for long distance riding. It's... Um, Never super comfortable, but it, it also never gets really bad. Okay. And that's a, there's C13 or 15 or something like that? Is that the... Uh... Yeah, I'm riding the C13. C13, yeah. Cool. Good to know. And you did carry an extra bottom bracket with you again, right? As planned? Uh, yes. I, I mean, it depends where I was in the beginning. I, I didn't have one because um, I could still get supplies. Uh, for Africa, I had extra button brackets, spokes, chain, really everything because... Um, there wouldn't be anything. Okay. And I used it. Um, I got a broken button bracket in Ethiopia, and I went to um, a motorcycle mechanic, and the 13, 14-year-old um, boy um, built it in with a, with a hammer, and uh, <laughs> it got me a bit scared, but uh, he did a good job. Oh, great. And I guess like Ethiopia, you're still a long ways from the end, so if, like if you hadn't have had that spare, it's a game over. It's 8,000K left, so... Mm-hmm. This game over, yes. Yeah, I did interview a guy recently, and he said that he uh, he always uses a Chris King bottom bracket because of that. He doesn't want to risk failure, but I think that's okay on a seven thousand kilometer bike race. But if you're doing uh, eighteen thousand kilometers, you, you definitely even a Chris King might might not last. Uh, yes, I I had a uh, broken bottom bracket on on all my on the Eurasia Pan America and that one. Okay, so it is simply. I tried different bottom brackets, but after 15,000 K with, with the sand of the hammer, uh, it's simply, they're not made for that. Do you use a specific brand or is it just um, any decent brand will go? Shimano or whatever? Um, I used the one from Curve. Okay. And I feel it gets already more stable. Uh, it lasts longer than the previous ones I used. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with it, but I, I cycled it for, it lasted around 17,000 K in total. You mentioned that you didn't carry the stuff with you the whole time. Where did you pick it up? Before, the, before I started, I, I already researched where do I have uh, decent bike shops. Okay. And I got in contact with them and they ordered some, some parts. I sent some parts there. So it was already um, um, prearranged that I can, 
I can uh, get service and uh, and supplies at those shops. Ah, what country was that in? It's it's the only way to do it. I mean, um, you won't even find uh, road bike tires otherwise um, anywhere, and um, especially if I have a very specific bike. So it costs a bit of time because you sometimes need to change uh, things a bit too early or a bit too late. But uh, for Africa, it simply is uh, the only way to do it. Did you carry an extra tire tube with you as you were riding, just in case of a catastrophic failure? Uh, yes, I always had, an, had one spare tire with me. Mm -hmm. I was running uh, Schwalbe tubeless tires, and uh, I barely had any problems. But um, still, I mean, you you get one pro problem with the tire, and it's 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 over. In Africa, you find you find them only in Nairobi. That's uh, in the ends of Africa again. Okay, how many times did you have to change your tires? And just the did you change them when before you left Europe, and then again in Africa? Or? Uh, no, no, I, I changed them once in uh, the back tire in Moscow, then um, both tires in Yawan. Okay. Uh, again, the back tire in Cairo, both in Nairobi, and that's it. Okay, so around three times, or like four for the back, two for the front kind of thing, right? What else did you have to change throughout your 72 days of riding? Did you have any issues with the cassettes or chains and things like that, all the standard stuff? Um, I went through four chains. So that's uh, not a lot for that distance, but um, I went actually with two chains across uh, Africa. Okay. Uh, simply because I didn't have the tools to, to, to change it. Uh, I made a mistake when I picked this the wrong um, um, multi-tool, so oh. I couldn't change it anymore. Yes. <laughs> and um, otherwise, no problems, no, no change from cassette. The only things I changed was tires, chains, and uh, I had one probe and spoke. Okay. That's not bad, actually, considering. Yes, I had much less problems than last year in Pan America, and the, and the roads were much worse in Africa. I guess part of it too is you're you're pretty lightweight, so it's not if you break a spoke, it's not weight related. It's just wear related, right? Exactly, exactly. I mean, my my total gear is around five to six kilo, depending on food and water, and and I'm I got pretty light um, in Africa, so. Yeah, it's basically a normal. By, by the time you needed to carry more food and water, you'd already lost enough kilos that it didn't make a difference for the weight. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so, as a you're an Ortlieb sponsored athlete, um, what setup did you decide to go with this time, and um, how was it different than your Pan America solo setup? Um, yes, so I, I used um, three um, bike picking bags from Ortlieb. Mm -hmm. One in the under the seat, one in the frame, and then the one between the handlebars. And I also used uh, um, a tri bag that I can put as an addition under my under my aero bus for the long distances in Sahara, so just to carry a bit more more water. Oh, okay, so you had the dry bag again with you just in case, right? Yeah, it's super small. It's like foldable a tri bag, mm -hmm. and so it's no weight at all and no um, and no um, space. And if I need it, I just take it out and I put it with a, with a rope under my aero bus. Ah, perfect. What was the total weight? You said around five and a half, six kilos. Uh, yes, between five and six kilos. Okay, what was uh, what did you have with you regarding equipment or gear? Uh, sure. So I went uh, super light. I did have a tent, um, a, a top tent pro trail with me. Okay. But I used it only like five or six times because uh, I usually bivy. Or in uh, in Africa, um, if I find a hotel, I go for the hotel. It's like four euros, and right, not very really nice, but uh, still better than. Um, Sleeping outside because it gets uh, dark so early. Uh, of course, mattress, sleeping bag. Um, then I had a small, super small towel, mm -hmm. and um, I have been using my uh, my my clothing 
further, so I only had two jerseys and two bib shorts, uh, arm warmers and a vest and uh, and a wind jacket. That's it. So no civil clothing at all. Okay. Did you and, have a, uh, no down jacket or anything like that, even a lightweight or? Uh, no, no. I had a warmer jacket from um, from Finland and Norway, okay. but I I got it in, when I reached uh, Saint Petersburg. Okay, gotcha. And uh, also no cooking um, elements anymore. I had um, cooking stuff with me for for Norway and Finland, but afterwards, I mean, food is it's easier to find a restaurant than a supermarket in in, in most countries. Mm -hmm. So I simply went with um, eating in restaurants. So when you got to St. Petersburg, you just uh, sent a package home with stuff you didn't need anymore? Is that kind of the, the idea? Um, well, I, I left it with, with a cycling friends oh, okay. uh, in Russia. Do you ever have problems with uh, the seat post bag? Because, you know, they tend to, they can sway pretty easily, I've heard. Um, how do you deal um, with that? Not, not at all, actually. There, there's from Rotlip, they have a strap um, that you can you can put um, to additionally fix it. Mm -hmm. And uh, this works uh, wonderful. Um, I know if you don't have the strap and you, you put in a lot of weight, then it's, it moves when you are going out of the saddle. Okay. But with the strap, you don't have this problem. I saw one cool one. It's like a little uh, a bar that's kind of shaped like a, a U or an N if it's upside down. And it attaches to your seat post rails. And on the sides of that bar, which go r tightly around the bag, you have bottle cage holders. So it becomes like a extra water holders and uh, and hopes to help to stabilize. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah. Do you think, well, actually, I was going to ask you if you think there's, um, if it affects your aerodynamics much having a handlebar roll, or is it just so minimal it doesn't really matter? Yeah, of course it matters. Um, the handlebar bag is for sure the less aerodynamic one of the, of the three I use. Okay. And um, yeah, you feel it, but it's it's still, I mean, I, I, need, I need the space and um, it is the best alternative. Do you ever consider a full frame bag and then, um, but then I don't know what you do with your water bottles. So, um, maybe exactly. something like that, hooking them behind your seat or something. I used a full frame bag once, but I had a, the issue that it touches my knees when I'm cycling. Mm. There may be uh, different models that I haven't tried, but, um, personally, I'm, I'm a fan of the, of the smaller one. All right. Let's talk about the actual ride. Um, Actually, uh, one other question first. Um, your gearing. What kind of uh, what kind of gear setup do you use on your on your bike for a tour like this? I was using um, two times eleven Shimano Ultiqua, mm -hmm. and um, I had a compact uh, cassette with um, I think it was forty in the back, and uh, the smallest one was um, I believe thirteen. Oh wow! Okay, and in the front, are you running uh, like a thirty forty six or something or? Or a little bit bigger? Uh, no, a small one also. Um, that was 46. Okay. Uh, it kind of, I mean, I never really push hard. So if I'm I'm above 45 kmh, then I'm, I'm anyway just chilling. Right. Enjoying the ride. Perfect. Let's talk about the ride. How different was it having a partner compared to how much time you previously spent riding alone? Yeah, the whole experience is it's completely different. I don't know what is easier actually. Um, I believe it's it's more predictable when you are alone. Okay. We struggled a lot together to get the hours in every day because um, you simply need more time in the morning, in the evening, and and with breaks. And uh, Philip was um, having a few um, uh, problems early on, mm -hmm. and uh, where you have more mechanicals and everything. So so you're not faster if you are if you are uh, two people in 
that's at least my experience. Okay, because yeah, that was my next question was going to be, did you cover a lot more kilometers riding with a partner? But I guess because of the delays and people want to stop at different times and, and maybe one person eats fast and they're ready to go, but the other one takes a little more time. And uh, in the end, you just kind of cover the same amount of ground. Um, yeah, I mean, if you if you are supported, uh, the partners for sure much faster. Yeah. But uh, unsupported, you simply lose more more time of everything. Okay. And um, of course, we are also not. Uh, you didn't ride that much before together. Um, so if you have a partner that is like by your one hundred percent aligned with everything, so you have the same kind of preferences and everything, then. You're probably a little bit faster, but uh, much less than people would imagine. Okay. And you mentioned in uh, some of your blog posts that Philip, uh, he was sidelined with food poisoning in, in Egypt, I believe. Uh, but he had also been struggling for a little bit of time before that. What was, uh, what was his struggles? Was it just keeping up with you or just other factors? Well, he struggled early on with, um, with knee problems, um, seat problems. So there was... It went from one part of the body to another one, but he was he had very few um, painless days, and um, yeah, and then later on the food poisoning basically gave um, the knockout. And uh, I saw that he actually went to a doctor in Iran to help deal with his uh, chafing, yeah, saddle sores. Uh, yes, yes, he got some some very bad uh, saddle sores, and uh, he went to a doctor in uh, in Iran to 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 get some help with that. Oh wow. Just a lot of bad luck. <laughs> can you uh, can you take us through your route? So you guys started, in, obviously, in the the top 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 of Norway. Um, from there, where did you yeah. go? Uh, yeah, so we started at Cape North, the northernmost point of uh, of Europe, and uh, had one and a half days in Norway, then across uh, Finland and uh, to the south uh, into Saint Petersburg, Moscow, and then uh, to southern Russia, across the Caucasus into Georgia, Azerbaijan. And then uh, all the way across Iran to to the southern, southern city of Shiraz. Okay. And from Shiraz we, we flew actually to to Cairo in Egypt. We originally had planned to go to to Iraq or, or Syria, but um, the border got um, the borders were closed, and uh, so we followed the route from from uh, Reza, who did um, the world records uh, in 2013. Uh, she was the south of Cairo, so that's why we we can we could do it. And from Cairo, we basically followed the classical East Africa route, which uh, goes to along the Nile River, mm-hmm. and then uh, into Sudan across the Sahara, and uh, Ethiopia, Kenya, Tanzania, Zambia, Botswana, and finally Cape Town. Okay. And how did your route change as you went? I mean, I I know we know about the you just mentioned it the change instead of going through Syria or Iraq, you ended up going through Iran. Uh, what other changes happened? I think I read something about Russian roads again, uh, constant life burden. <laughs> yes. So in in Russia, the road uh, changed a lot. Um, a little bit after Moscow, we um, had planned to go on the the route that's a bit um, further east. Okay. Uh, which would have been the fastest one, but um, it was a small road without a shoulder and heavy truck traffic. And the Russian truck drivers, they, they don't really care about cyclists. So it was simply a, a proper suicide route. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we detoured and went um, on a parallel route that went uh, much further west, which was actually a highway. So not fun, but there was a shoulder and it was um, much safer. And uh, later on, I, I detoured a few times in 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 Africa, 
uh, in Egypt mostly because of the police. Mm -hmm. We got into a constant struggle with with police that didn't want us um, to write. And then you go on a different one and somehow try to to, to escape them. And uh, I had a few um, a few detours in Af- further on in, in Africa because of, um, of old constructions. Okay. But um, there, there aren't that many alternatives because there's mostly only just one paved road. Okay, got it. Uh, were there any other big challenges in the European part of the ride? Um, well, the European part, uh, Norway, Finland, um, we had strong headwinds, but still felt like a, like a warm-up because it's civilized uh, Europe with, with infrastructure and food and everything, so, so that was uh, super easy. In Russia, we had non-stop rain and five degrees for five or six days. Oh, wow. I think that's where I saw you guys cutting up the... Uh emergency blankets or something right uh, exactly yes yes so we actually put emergency blankets um, around the feet and everything to somehow get warm and uh, we were on the highway so this is like really hell if you're on the shoulder of a highway and it's just five degrees and rain and you have to have trucks passing you non-stop at full speed uh, not my favorite uh, place to cycle and uh, otherwise we had a few issues with um, with road conditions in Azerbaijan because they um, simply destroyed if they, they do road constructions, they first destroy the entire road for like 50k and then, then rebuild it for years. Oh, so, okay. yes, you don't end up on like 40, 50k of, of really terrible gravel. Yeah, it's like in Canada, they always just do a couple lanes and then they make the road into two lanes instead of four and then they and then they fix those two lanes and then they switch sides. Yes, that's what they do in Europe too. <laughs> I want to jump forward. Uh, actually, let's talk about the police in Egypt and then we'll we'll get on to, to Philip and his... Uh, bailing on the the event um but how did yeah. you deal with the police i think you had a you had a good friend helping you um yes so um, the problem is that the police um, in egypt is super paranoid about anything happening to tourists and um, because of the tourism sector mm-hmm. so they have uh, police checkpoints all 10 to 50k and you get stopped and the police doesn't want to let you continue riding so you have to negotiate because they want to just put you on the on the pickup and drive it to the next checkpoint, which of course we couldn't do. So it's constant negotiations and um, you get a police escort. I luckily had an Egyptian friend um, whenever I got into trouble with the police, I, I simply called him and then he negotiated um, that we can ride or can sleep somewhere and um, that helped a lot. Oh wow. And by negotiate, do you mean you have to pay as well or was it just more of a talking them down from their, their ideas? Uh, no, I got only the only time I got corruption was actually um, Egyptian um, border authorities, but not the police. Okay. They just don't want want to let you cycle, so they they tell you, yeah, you waited now here for five minutes and then nothing happens. And um, of course, we are on we were in a hurry, so it was negotiations about being able to ride, being able to ride now, and also about where to sleep because. Um, they always wanted to put us on a truck and, and drive us to the next hotel while we wanted to camp somewhere. I got you. Yeah. All right, let's jump forward to Philip. Um, I mean, really unfortunate that he he had, had to decide to, to not continue. Um, yeah. Can you take us through how this happened and how he made the decision to call it quits and what were the emotions like at the time? Um, yes, so it basically started when we were cycling along the Nile River for most of Egypt, and uh, then we went up into into Sahara. So you go up the descent dune, and then you are basically uh, on the Sahara. The road runs parallel to the Nile. Okay. 
And then uh, Philip was basically immediately feeling very sick uh, from food poisoning. And uh, we continued riding for maybe another 50K, but uh, he was um, already struggling and, and um, feeling very bad. And um, then uh, there was a, a little, like a, like a little house from the, from the nomad. Okay. Because it got like already up to like 30 something degrees. And uh, he wanted to stop there and, uh, and lie down. And then he got, got worse and uh, decided that um, he won't make it to, to Aswan, which was the next uh, city, around 100k away. So we got him a taxi and uh, we marked the position on GPS so that the next day, if he decides to, he could go back and continue riding from there. And um, I went uh, by bike to Aswan and uh, I met him there again. I, he went to the hospital and I picked him up there. And um, the next morning, um, it is basically when you got food poisoning during a, during a ride like this, you cannot take a rest day because if you take a rest day, your body shuts down completely. Oh, okay. uh, you, you will just feel two words. It's, it doesn't help. So it's basically when you had food, food, food poisoning, you will have a few really, really bad days. And uh, Sahara isn't the best place for that. Uh, so um, he decided that, that um, yeah, he won't continue. Gotcha. Was there was there any level of resentment on your part at that time? I mean, I'm sure now you're you're kind of past it, and you, you realize that probably safety wise is for the best. Were you kind of upset at the time? Um, yes, I I was um, at the beginning upset, but um, yeah, he was simply also mentally he he made a decision that he doesn't want to um, want to continue through the hammer and um, body wise. Uh, it's okay to 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 push someone, but uh, in we were going to a remote part of Sahara, and um, if I would push him there, um, I mean I would also be responsible. Mm-hmm. Before continuing on with the podcast, I just want to thank some of the Bike Tour Adventures sponsors. Bike Tour Adventures is proudly sponsored by Redshift Sports. Founded in 2013 by a team of mechanical engineers who happen to be avid cyclists, they've been focused on creating components that make a meaningful difference to the riding experience, such as the switch aero system, the shock stop suspension system, and the kitchen sink handlebar system. I've been using the dual position seat posts paired with the shock stop stem since 2020 and have nothing but great things to say about their products. Use the checkout code BTA15 on their website to save 15%. Beginning in 2010 with environmental sustainability as a main focal point, Restrap has been in the bag making business for quite some time. Having used a race bag since 2021, I find their holster system and magnetic buckles to be extremely effective and truly unique. Use the checkout code BTAPOD10 to save 10% at checkout. Lastly, named after the animal that roams the Tibetan plateau, Chiru Endurance Bikes was started by Pierre Arnaud Le Magna in 2009. After noticing the lack of endurance bikes on the market, Pierre used his expertise, know-how, and racing experience to create high-end carbon fiber and titanium bikes for the discerning rider and racer. Thanks, and back to the podcast. And um, in the end, I it's his decision. Yeah. Yeah, I think when it comes, like you, you mentioned... Um, when it comes to the mental factor, I think once you once you've mentally called it quits, given up, and said that's it, it's very hard to turn back from that. Yes, the, the, the longer it it gets the race, the more it becomes a, a mental game, and um, but you need to believe one hundred percent that you will make it. Right. Uh, if you think it's a bad idea to continue into Sahara, then it is a bad idea because you don't believe it. Um, I saw that you also ended up getting food poisoning and. Um, 
So as you said, you just have to keep going and just, that's it? Um, yeah, I got food poisoning um, three times in Africa. First time in Sahara, actually like a day later. And then again in Ethiopia and Zambia. And um, yeah, it's really, it's really hell, in, especially in, in Sahara and in, in, in Ethiopia. It was, it was so bad. I got it for, for five days until I felt better. Um, what I did is basically I focus on, on small goals. So I don't think it's, it's another 2000K until I'm out of there. Um, I always focus on the next, on the next guest station or the next shop where I get some cookies and the Coke. And uh, I like cookies and Coke. <laughs> so it's, it's all about staying positive um, and breaking down the big goals into small ones. And um, I also think actually every day when I get up, I think um, tomorrow I will be fine again. But deep down, I know it's, it's probably not right. But as long as I don't know the opposite, I, I believe so. Okay. Um, actually, back to Philip for a second. Do you think he, in hindsight, do you think he regretted his decision? Um, no, I know that he, he doesn't regret it. Okay. Didn't regret it. That's good. I mean, you wouldn't want to be regretting that for long periods of time. Do you carry medicine with you for things like diarrhea or um, uh, water purification tablets, things like that? Um, yes, so I always carry um, painkillers. Mm-hmm. And I also carry um, tablets for, for food poisoning. Um, but that's it. Okay. And uh, I should have carried a water, water filter with me because I had to drink the, the water from the locals in, in Sahara. Which, um, and if you put some Nile water on top of your food poisoning, it, it doesn't really help. Um, but I expected that I would be able to get bottled uh, water, but the people are too poor to, to buy it, so that there simply is no market. And that, that was in Sudan, or is that in, uh, I'm assuming it's Sudan. Yeah. Yeah, that's in Sudan, yes. Yeah. Sudan is by far uh, the poorest country in, 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 uh, on my hood. Okay. I've heard great things about the people, though. Uh, wonderful people, wonderful. It is. It's incredible, actually, that um, Iran and Sudan are the, are the two countries that, that now basically destroyed one of my passports for, for future U.S. travel. And uh, those are the countries with the, with the nicest people I've ever met. So yeah, awesome. don't, get your, don't get your opinion about, um, about the local people mm-hmm. uh, mixed up with politics. Yeah, yeah. So if you go to Sudan, you also can't, yeah, it's difficult to travel to places like uh, Israel and USA and stuff. And well, if Israel, it's, um, you can always go to Israel. The other way around, it doesn't work. If you've been to Israel, you cannot go to Sudan. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. You can get your, your stamp in a, on, a, on a sheet. The, the problem is more the US, that uh, if you have been to Iran or Sudan, um, you don't, you cannot get ESTA anymore for the US. So you, I, you have to apply for a visa every time. And I am pretty sure that they will question you a lot what you have been doing there. Right. Tell us about the border leaving Egypt. You mentioned that was the one place you had corruption. Uh, yes. So um, this is a border. I came, um, even before the border, there was around 100K before the border, there was a police checkpoint and um, I got stopped. Um, it was still 5 p.m. So I still wanted to ride, but they thought it's, it's too dangerous for me, which of course isn't true. Um, but um, I had to camp there and I was actually feeling like a proper prisoner. So I always had someone who wanted to go with me to the toilet. And uh, if I went one meter to the left, then they immediately screamed, stop, stop, it's, it's dangerous. Oh, wow. And yeah, so I, I actually was a prisoner. And um, the next morning, um, after long negotiations, I, I could leave. And I cycled for 150 meters and I got to a military checkpoint 
different jurisdiction and um, the same Turk is uh, all over again. And after that, I finally got to the border, uh, which is in a very remote part. So it's not the main border between Egypt and uh, Sudan. It's a new border that has been traveled by, by very few foreigners. Um, the border was closed when I arrived and um, around 200 uh, Sudanese people waiting at the gates and they have a very sophisticated um, corruption system there because um, first you um, you pay for an, um, an exit stamp, then you have to pay at another window next to it for, for a signature in your exit stamp <laughs> and then you are allowed to get into the building. Uh, you have to imagine it's 45 degrees out there. And they removed all the water, and they make you wait for as long as, until you come and, and, and pay them, basically. Oh, wow. And yes, it's uh, the most co-op people I've ever met, and I've been to, to more than 100 countries. I got, luckily, uh, the Sudanese are the opposite. The Sudanese, I had zero corruption and just incredibly helpful people. A lot of them speak English. So I got, uh, I got a guy from, that was also traveling through, and, and he helped me to, to navigate through, through this process. Oh, wow. Was there any one country in Africa that was exceptionally challenging to cycle in? Uh, yeah, so Sudan was super challenging with uh, Sahara. Uh, if you have headwind in Sahara, then that's just, you try out immediately. Okay. And um, afterwards, Ethiopia, that was personally the worst country I've ever cycled in my life. Why was that? Um, first of all, it's, it's very mountainous, which is, um, in theory, a good thing. I like mountains, but uh, the road conditions are super bad. And um, you get unfortunately constantly attacked by uh, by children. Um, it's super strange, and I, I don't know why, but I, I heard this from every cyclist who ever went to Ethiopia. There are children everywhere. They have like the highest population growth in the world, and a lot of them they throw stones after you, and some try to put sticks into the into the wheels and um, some other bad things. So it's simply a country where you're constantly uh, under tension. Because you don't know what's what's going to happen. Oh, okay. Yeah, I interviewed one guy. He said that was the only country he wore a bicycle helmet in. He actually went and bought one when he got to Ethiopia because, or before Ethiopia, because of that reason. <laughs> yes, I, I heard it from a lot of people. I mean, there's a, I know a WhatsApp group about cycling in Africa, and people are a lot of cyclists are scared about uh, riding to Ethiopia. Wow. Yeah, um, I know someone who got a, a big stone on the head. And um, I mean, I'm, I'm less as, as exposed because I'm fast. Mm -hmm. But uh, on the mountains, um, on a touring bike, you, you simply can't escape. No, that's right. Um, do you think that I heard somebody hypothesize that maybe the reason the kids are throwing stones is because that's what their parents do to them when they're like, when they're horsing around, they just chuck stones at them and say, get away from us? It is very possible because they also throw stones at each other. Okay. And um, it kind of stops when they turn, I would say, 13, 14. Then they get actually really nice. Ah. But um, and there are also actually there are a lot of nice children, but yeah. it's not a minority. There are a lot of them who also throw stones at you. I, I don't know the reason for it, um, but it's definitely true that, that um, also the, the adults, when they want to get rid of someone, of, of an animal or... or Possibly a child is if he throws stones. It's very strange, yeah. It's, I mean, you think the parents might be like, uh, what are you doing? Don't throw stones at strangers. Um, there is also something that the parents never actually uh, uh, intervened. 
Yeah. So I had situations where I got like really chased a lot, and they 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 threatened me with sticks and throw stones at me, and the, the parents were just standing there and laughing. So I never got attacked by 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 adults, but they also didn't help to prevent it. Okay. Um, what were some of the other highlights from cycling through Africa? I mean, after these lowlights like Ethiopia. The whole of actually Sudan and Ethiopia was basically. Uh, one nightmare after another, but uh, things turned better once I reached Kenya. Kenya and Tanzania are, are nice landscapes, super friendly people, it's safe countries, and um, there was some, some really good, uh, good riding there. And uh, then, of course, uh, Botswana, um, with the wildlife. Mm -hmm. There's, a, there's a, a road in the north um, that I went through, it's, it's like 300k of, uh, to wildlife reservoirs. Wow. And uh, elephants running, walking across the, the road, giraffes, zebras. And uh, I had one night where I was uh, sleeping at a, at a police um, station, and the lion came at night and ate uh, one of the dogs. Are you serious? So, yeah, I'm serious. <laughs> Good thing you were inside. <laughs> yeah, so, so I actually was a bit scared because, um, I mean, the, the animals, as long as you, are, you see them, um, Early on, the, the lions they avoid the roads, and um, the elephants. Uh, if you respect them, you, you keep your distance, and and you take care that there are, there are no that you never get between the, the mom and the child. Then it's fine. Mm -hmm. um, the problem is when you get into the dark because you won't see the elephants early on. You get too close, and then the lions also come out. Yeah. And um, I wanted to make a to camp and make a fire, but then it was raining heavily, and I I couldn't so. I got actually into the dark and and uh, yeah, I got a bit scared. But then I found this this police station and um, and I wanted to camp there. But they said no, 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 you you really can't camp here because there was an elephant uh, also walking around and destroying a few things. And uh, so they put me into 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 a little room they had and and I could sleep there. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Okay. Did you ride much at nighttime then in these parts, or are you just kind of stuck to the daylight hours? In most of Africa, I, I, I stick to the daylight hours because of safety. Okay. Um, I did night cycle in, in Egypt and uh, Sudan and uh, Kenya and all South Africa. Okay. And um, how are things after Botswana? Well, after Botswana, um, South Africa is a pretty developed country. So it didn't really feel like, like um, proper Africa. Um, paved roads and food and everything, but um, I expected strong tailwinds all the, all the way to the to the finish line because that's the prevailing wind direction. Mm -hmm. Though I got like 30 kmh headwinds nonstop for the last five days. And you were you were hitting some extraordinary long days one after another at the end, right? Trying to finish as fast as possible. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I had calculated that I averaged around 330 or 40 k a day with slight tailwinds um, to arrive in Cape Town on, town, on time. Uh, now I got instead of the tailwinds, I got strong headwinds, but I, I, I kept with my 330-40k. So I was riding around 14 hours in the saddle every day. Yeah. Were, were you in, was there any dangerous moments in South Africa? Because I know a lot of cyclists, they will, they, will cut a, they will cut west and then go down through Namibia and then in towards Cape Town just for safety reasons. They say it's better to spend less time cycling in South Africa. What was your feeling? Uh, yes, South Africa is a it's a very dangerous place. 
On the road, you are you are fine, but um, you have to be to calculate where you are at um, at night, especially in the cities. And um, nothing happened to me, but uh, I mean, you notice from from how everything looks, there are electric fences and barbed wire basically everywhere, mm-hmm. and uh, all the people are they're constantly talking about the danger. Okay. So it's definitely one of the most violent and, and dangerous places I've ever been to. And um, I think Philip and another guy, right? They came down and they met you towards the end. Were they just in a follow car or did they just meet you at the finish line? Um, yes. So we are making a film and, and a book about the journey. And uh, Philip and our filmmaker, they, they flew into, into Cape Town, into, into Johannesburg. Mm-hmm. And then they followed uh, by car for the last uh, four days to take uh, content. Okay. But of course, it wasn't a support car, so I always stayed, uh, kept the distance and uh, didn't accept anything uh, from them, of course, but simply to uh, to document the journey. Yeah. I think it's got to be tough when you have a support car and you can't, like, take anything from them, not even, like, a, a water bottle refill, you know, things like that. It's got to be a, a little bit of a mind game. Yeah. Well, for me, this is, it's natural, kind of, that you don't do it, but they're they were like, I had one moment that was where I felt like so bad because I was riding the, I was super hungry and it, it was dark and I felt so miserable after like 12, 13 hours. I had no water and no food left and uh, it was another 50k in the headwind to the next town and you know there's a, there's a car with everything you want <laughs> behind you but you can't, uh, you can't even think about it. <laughs> Full of Coke and Snickers bars. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Let's talk about the record. I remember initially in our last conversation, you said, if you guys didn't finish the two of you together, it doesn't count as a Guinness record. Can you tell us about how the, what your record is now and how that works? Um, yeah, so I'm not 100% sure how it is with Guinness at the moment because um, uh, of, yeah, we didn't finish together. And uh, the process with Guinness, if you don't pay them, it takes around uh, at least half a year. Okay. Uh, so that's also what I mean. What I what I claim is um, the record for the distance because I'm the fastest guy who has cycled it, mm-hmm. and um, I do have everything is transparent on my website with the, the tracker and everything. But uh, whether it will be approved by Guinness or not, I don't know at this stage. Okay, so it's just I mean it's still a record. It just might not be approved by Guinness, and I think uh, any solo or teams riders would have a hard time beating that 72 days. So. I think it's a pretty strong record and it's really impressive no matter how you look at it. Thanks. Um, since finishing on November 19th, what have you been up to? Um, I went directly back to, to Europe. For, uh, I work as a motivational speaker and I had the media things to do. Um, I did this actually consciously because um, I know that if I don't do it, um, the body will shut down and I, I basically finished for a month. Yeah. And uh, after that, I... I went uh, four days ago. I came to to Brazil, and uh, now I have proper vacation, uh, lying on the beach and uh, probably recovering from the ride. Nice, nice. And I know you said on uh, previous talks or platforms that you have something big planned for 2020 and that you would be sharing it in February. Is it impossible to get you to talk about it now? That's absolutely impossible. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> like, I can only stay uh, too much. Um, I'm I'm announcing it. On- Announcing it on the 21st of February. Is it? Okay, and, good. I look forward to it. Um, let's, let's say it like this. It, 
is definitely much, much harder than, than Pan America or, or Cape to Cape and, and takes a bit longer. Uh, no one has ever done anything anything similar to that. So okay. there is no no. And I and no I see that you have a gravel bike now. So there's a, that's a that's just a hint, right? That is one one hint. Yes, more hints are coming very soon on my on my social media. Awesome. And where can people find you if they want to see these hints and uh, know more about you? Uh, well, of course, my my Facebook page and uh, Instagram profile, and as well as my my website uh, johnsteichman.com. Awesome. Uh, and just so you know, you did motivate me. I'm uh, I'm registered for two ultra endurance races next year in uh, Europe. So uh, I'm going to start with the Trans Pyrenees in the end of June, and then in the end of July, I'm going to do the North Cape 4000. Oh, nice. That's a that's a big one. I had some friends doing it uh, this year. They absolutely loved it. I think I remember that last time you, you you also told me that you are thinking about some kind of record. Is that still? Um, maybe a, another year mm -hmm. away or something. But I got to do some. Uh, just push my boundaries first and see see what I can achieve, and then uh, then we could see about it. Yeah, it might happen. Yeah, let me know. I will I will help you with some with some things. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jonas. You should do earlier than better earlier than later because uh, I'm getting older. The records are getting harder to break. Yeah, that's true. With you out there. Anyways, Jonas, I will let you go. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, I wish you really amazing recovery in Brazil. And uh, I can't wait to see what happens in February. Yeah, thanks. But you too. Enjoy. Bye. Bye. In the next episode of Bike Tour Adventures, I'm going to be speaking with Victor Zicho, a Hungarian national that is riding a recumbent bike along parts of the Silk Road following the steps of a famous Hungarian poet slash writer slash explorer. This tour has taken Victor through some amazing landscapes into countries that people don't go to very often to cycle, crossing down from the Pamir Highway into Afghanistan, going up through the Wakhan Corridor, and then crossing the border into Pakistan and making his way down from there. Stay tuned and keep on pedaling. If you like these podcasts and want to hear more just like them, you can tune in at biketouradventures.com or on any podcast app you use. If you go to the website, there's also other resources, tips on cycling in different countries I've been to, as well as my own tour reviews and write-ups. Um, so check it out and subscribe, please. Thank you and have a good day. Bye-bye. I want to end the show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I regularly receive from you. It really helps motivate me and keep me going with this project and to continue sharing people's amazing stories. If you have questions or comments, you can email me at bike at bikepackadventures.ca or go to bikepackadventures.ca and shoot me a message through the contact form. You can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes, bikepacking routes throughout Canada, blog posts, videos, and touring tips. Lastly, I'd like to once again thank all the individuals and companies that are supporting the podcast. If you are enjoying the show and like what I'm doing, you can become one of my show supporters by going to patreon.com slash bikepackadventures. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help keep this show going. You can also help out by sending a one-time donation through PayPal. This money all goes back into the podcast, help me to cover the costs associated with running the show, buy new equipment when necessary, and produce the high-quality content that you've become accustomed to. Much appreciated and keep on pedaling.